Hey guys, Zach here, and I wanted to let you guys know that Fieldwork is brought to you in part by General Mills. General Mills is partnering with farmers and suppliers to advance regenerative ag practices on a million acres of farmland by 2030. They need a sound check on you. Tell us what you, you have for breakfast. Yep. <laughs> we just need to talk. I had a big Indeed. fat cinnamon roll. Non-GMO. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't so. read any of that. Out I there. hope so. So I think it was a good, safe <laughs> GMO cinnamon roll. So that's why it tasted so good. Yeah. I'm Zach Johnson. I'm Mitchell Hora, and this is the Fieldwork Podcast. We're back, and we got some guests here with us in the studio. Uh, we're talking with Brian and Lauren Bigler, and uh, so I don't screw it up, I'll let them kind of introduce themselves and whatnot, and we'll kind of jump into it, but basically just being able to open up conversation, you know, have some dialogue about what's going on on the farm. You know, this podcast is for other row crop farmers also, just like all, you know, we are. So if we can open up, you know, just some of that dialogue on what you guys have seen, what you guys have learned, uh, both, you know, unveiling some of the good things that have happened and some of the issues that we've all have ran into along the way. So Brian and Lauren, thanks for coming in and I'll let you just introduce yourselves. I am Brian Bigler from Southwest Minnesota, uh, raised corn and soybeans down there and trying to raise three kids at the same time, which is always a full-time job. And also involved with the state corn, Minnesota Corn Growers Association. I live with Brian and also trying to, to raise uh, our three kids is probably my, been my full-time job for, for quite a while now. But um, from originally from central Iowa, grew up on a farm and went to school at Iowa State and have worked in agriculture. And now we live on Brian's family farm in southwest Minnesota. So that's why Lauren and I are friends because we're both from Iowa. That's right. You got that in common. Yeah, we got that. This is why Brian and I are friends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hold it tight. So on this episode, what we really want to talk about is is getting stakeholders on board. And when you want to change your practices or looking at doing things differently, whether it's with uh, conservation practices or, or tillage practices, which you guys have a lot of experience with, tell us a little bit about the challenges and, and some of the changes that you guys have made and some of the challenges that have come with that as far as getting some of the other people involved in your operation on board with some of those changes? Uh, about seven years ago, I decided to make a change into strip tillage and no tilling and cover crops. I had been all conventional tillage before that. Um, one of the first things to do was to go in and start talking to my landlords and see how, if they were going to be okay with that to, for me to implement that onto their farms. Um, luckily, most of them were all pretty receptive about it and were interested in it and had a lot of questions, of course, about it. But um, that went pretty well. Um, they were all on board with it and were interested to see how it happened. Um, my agronomist, he was the next one to kind of talk to about it. Uh, he was pretty skeptical about it, had a lot of questions about it. So I talked to him about it and just kind of told him the direction I wanted to go. And so he's gotten on, he was interested in it. So we got going on it and he was watch what is happening. So now he's he's actually doing some of the stuff on some of the ground that he has now. And so he has a lot of his people that are that he, other customers that he works with and asks a lot of questions too. So biggest one was just uh, neighbors. Get a lot of weird looks from the neighbors when you're trying to figure, when you're doing this and you're doing it pretty much the opposite of what everybody else is trying to do. So that's, um, I think they're starting to see that I've been in it long enough now that 
they're seeing that it's working. I haven't gone broke yet, and um, it's still staying with it and stuff. So there might be something to it. So I'm starting to get a lot more questions about it now. Lauren, you've got some uh, some stories and some situations where you had to deal with some people that uh, you maybe had to convince or or deal with as far as changing your practices on your field. So can you tell us a little bit about some of uh, some of those situations? Yeah, and these were pretty low-pressure situations, I've got to be honest, because this... Um, after I went to school, I had the pleasure of working with a number of agronomists and, and seed dealers from a number of districts across the country and still keep in touch with a number of them. And one of my agronomists, I told him kind of what we were thinking about doing. And yeah, I mean, typical reaction, he, you know, what are you talking about? You guys are crazy. You know, you're one, you're going to turn into one of those hippie farmers or whatever, <laughs> whatever choice phrase he used. But you know, talking to him about, well, why? This is why we're thinking about doing it. And it just, it was really striking to me. And even talking to some other large seed dealers, when I think about like the number of acres that these people influence and the number of people they talk to, it was really striking to me like that they didn't, I don't want to say, I I don't know how to say this without making them sound like they, because they're very intelligent people, but I just don't think soil health has ever been something that they've ever been taught. You know, they, they learn about genetics and corn and soybeans and, and chemicals and those sorts of things. But, you know, soil health really and the, the principles behind that and the, the reasons for doing that, I think, are something that until recently, people don't receive a lot of education about or talk about very often. So when he, I felt like he wasn't, he didn't quite get why we would want to be doing that. It was very striking to me because I thought he's been in the industry a long time. Um, very intelligent man, obviously, but um, just the the principles behind soil health, the fact that he didn't, you know, quite get why what we were getting at or what we were why we were wanting to do it, that was striking to me. And a number of people I've talked to, you know, that have been in the industry a long time, working in it a long time, just don't. Yeah, and that's huge. If that's one of your most trusted advisors, right there, and and if right. you're getting naysaying from one of your most trusted go to people. It's hard to be able to go beyond that, even to the next step, to right. say, "Hey, I feel confident, you know, that the guy that I've been working with for a long time has got my back, right. and we're going to work together on this. So now let's go to the next people to get them on board, also, and join the team." If you have pushback from the first person trying to get on the team, right, it's tough to go get the other ones, right, right. So that, that's almost shocking to me because I know in my personal situation. Um, our county has got to be 99.5% conventional tillage. I mean, there is almost zero no-till. Um, and, and the independent agronomists that I work with actually would love it if we would go strip-till, no-till, cover crop, and figure something out. He would love to work with guys that want to do that, but there's nobody that Willing. wants to try that. Yeah, so in my personal situation, it's almost the opposite. I mean, the agronomist would love to see us try some strip-till stuff, but you just don't have willing parties out there that 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 want to do much with it. Now we've got some guys that will run some uh, test strips. I do have one neighbor, I guess, that does do uh, a good amount of strip tillage, but in our situation, it's almost the opposite. I don't know. Do you guys think that it's common what Lauren's talking about here? Do you think it's more common that way to have the the agronomist actually lean the opposite direction? I definitely think so. I think so. I think a lot of it's just the education side. They just don't know. I mean. 
they're so used to the other side of it yet, uh, just the conventional one, they haven't seen the exposure to the mm-hmm. other side yet. And, and in, I think it's part of the culture, you know, yeah. you have That's the farmer culture, but then you have the agronomist culture and, mm-hmm. and whether that agronomist be independent or through an ag retailer or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, that they have to be part of the culture too. And they're, they're probably going to be a fit in that natural culture. Now, maybe they are going to be the one to kind of lead the pack and go out and say, Hey, let's do something a little bit different here for those who want to try something different. Just like there has to be farmers that say, Hey, let's go and try something a little different. Um, we're seeing some opportunity. We're trying to learn from other people and let's go and experiment and do something a little bit new. My worry with some of that being, you know, that we brought up funding and whatnot in the funding channels that the government is seeing as the number one go-to is those ag, ag retailer agronomists and whatnot and, and independence and whatnot too. But my point being in trying to allocate funding and whatnot back through the pipeline, if you're going from the government to the ag retailer or whatever, the agronomist, and there's a bottleneck at the agronomy level to get it to the farmer, then that is an issue also. And then same thing, if the farmer is trying to go to uh, their local NRCS office to be able to get some help to get some funding, and then they're trying to implement it, and their agronomist is coming back saying, crazy. Uh, "We better put the brakes on this yeah. one." Then the funding could be there, and then they, you know, it kind of backs off at that point. Well, I don't see a lot of. I mean, from a, a like a co-op perspective, you know, one of our hopes for all this was, oh, can we eventually be able to reduce fertilizer? Mm-hmm. You know, those sorts of things. Well, if that mm-hmm. goes against their Goes against mantra trying to yeah. sell their bottom line, yeah. you know, are they going to be ones to really advocate and, and right. push for this? And my thing is, things change. So, does your business model need to evolve with that? Do you need to start selling cover crops? Do you, you know, do you Absolutely. Do, do your business models need to change to adapt? I think we're finally this? seeing some of that coming about. You know, that I've got some interesting view into a little bit of that. So, I think there's some change coming, but those are huge ships. To try to turn huge yeah if you want to get a blank stare that was i went in and talked to my uh re- local retailer about it when i was going to get into it and they're like yeah hopefully someday i can start reducing fertilizer and reduce chemical usage and stuff and they just <laughs> like why would you want to do that music to <laughs> you know, their ears <laughs> so you know getting them on board it's going to probably be one of the is going to be a big process there so we t- we've talked a little bit about the economics of it. And a, a question that I have is you say you started this around seven years ago. So if I back, to, back up to 2012 and think about what the corn prices were back then, the corn and soybean prices and what we had going on there, you mentioned it, it was dry, 2012, we know that. Uh, wh- what would be some of the challenges now getting into this that, that, you know, how would it be different for you to start this now as opposed to what it was like seven years ago? One of the biggest things I think would be just with the, the wet, wetter pattern that we're in right now, my soil structure is set up so much different. Like the last couple of falls, we've had guys have gone out, all the neighbors, they're out, out getting their combine stuck, the grain cart stuck and everything. And I've been able to sail right straight through any, everything. Haven't, haven't had left a rut in a field. I mean, if I was trying to start right now and that it takes that time for that soil structure to set up, we would probably be looking at that three years at least before it starts getting turned over a little bit. Um, all of a sudden you start leaving ruts and you got to come back out, try to level everything off and everything that can be kind of a little, little bit of a challenge there. So, um, and just the no-tilling, um, you know, in spring you want to get planting, you want to sell dried out some. And if you're not 
if it's going to be wetter, it's going to be harder to get in there and get planting. You know, the last thing you want to do when it's sunny out is be sitting there waiting for your field to dry out. Right. You want to be be going. Right. So you mentioned that it takes, you know, roughly you think three years to get that good soil structure kind of changed over. What does a person do for three years there while you're waiting for that soil to, to, to change over? Well, you're especially, especially in a time like now when we're fighting the economics of, of what we're up against right now in agriculture. And maybe, maybe Mitchell has some thoughts on this as well, as far as how to, how to kind of get through some of that. Yeah, that, that's a, that's definitely a tough one to, or you, you got to consider that, um, perseverance i guess you got to do it and just have your mind made up that you're going to try to work through it um there's ways you can kind of get you, like if i do have, if there would be a spot out there you just got to go out and work that little spot down and get that leveled off um but i don't think we ever saw a crop failure in no. those three years i mean i don't think i mean we saw some benefits no. pretty quickly i mean every year we kind of fully realize a little bit more but i think you want to i think it's important to talk about most of the time, you know, trying to, as you're transitioning through this and soil is transitioning, you're not most of the time not going to have some kind of crop no. failure or you're not well, even going to have that. Till, you know, you guys were, were kind of going to a strip till system though, too. Yeah. Where you still have that um, kind of leveled off seed bed and yeah. whatnot, but it's just in a more narrow area. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it, so did you guys have like um, the RTK GPS and that kind of stuff yeah. set up ahead of time though, too, you know, that'd be another Yeah, I had expense. all my, uh, I've been set up with that for quite a few years now. The RTK, I had that all years before that. Um, so I was able, had all my guidance lines and everything all set up. So I was able to just transfer them right in and keep going with stuff. So there is, it wasn't too bad to get into it. We've never, like she said, we never have had a crop failure on anything. Um, my yields have always been, right with everybody and i i don't know i haven't talked to my got no official numbers yet but last fall with everything um i think my yields are going to be running especially on corn probably going to be 15 to 20 above the county average so last year was a year that that we were wet that all of this work has shined right like i mean there's a lot of years where you that's what you may not look a lot time. of different from your neighbors, but yeah, a lot last of times fall, the really... guys that I talk to that are really into this, they say when all their neighbors are having a good year, they're right there with them. Mm-hmm. But it's when the neighbors are having a bad year that they're able to be more resilient yeah. and their soils are built up and they're able to withstand. Whether that be it's too dry and my soils, though, with better structure and built organic matter and better infiltration, I'm holding more of that water. Or if it's too wet, I've got the structure, I've got the infiltration to be able to get that water down and get that water held and dispersed into the soil versus trying to run off the top or pond. It helps with consistency, Mm -hmm. I think, from year to year. It helps withstand some of those weather challenges and extremes a little bit better. How much drain tile do you guys have under your fields? Oh, we have a fair amount. Um, And it it was there before you started this? Yeah. Yeah, there was some there. We've added some in as I've added some into some fields. Um, there's definitely can use some more in spots. But sure. I also feel like um, some spots that I've have had issues with in the past, they've kind of gone away. Um, so I've. You think the soil structure changed enough that oh, some yeah. of those spots opened up and yeah. allowed the filtration? Yeah, especially with uh, implementing cover crops into it in those spots, it just helps. Um, you get some of those things that you got such a big rut that gets down five, six feet, they'll crack that ground open and give water channels for it to go through. And We've always said there's no, there isn't a line on your, on your, balance, sheet. On your balance sheet for soil health, but there's definitely like 
some sort of monetary value there, even though it's a lot of little things that kind of flow into that. But I think another stakeholder that is important in this whole journey would be lenders. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you kind of brought our banker, (laughs) our egg loan person along too. And, you know, when you're in a situation where like the economics are like they are at this point where we had the ability to take that risk um, just because of commodity prices at the time we made the switch. But now if somebody wants to do that, is your lender going to be willing to okay (laughs) a loan for a new piece of equipment? But that's another person to educate and bring along on the journey too, because it does tie back to the economics a little bit and yeah, that's definitely another person. And when you talk about your lender, was your lender he or she? Were they on board? I, I think he thought well, he was another one that thought you were crazy. Yeah, they were kind first. of wondering what was going on. <laughs> like you know, else. why? You know, they're looking up in front at the numbers at at first, but once I explained to them, and then it was easier to get them to come on board a little bit just with the grain markets. They could. I mean, took the numbers into him and showed it to him, and he's like, "Well, okay." And so, but it was like everybody else; they're skeptical about it. Is this something where you guys went all in, or or did you start with you know forty acres or an eighty or or something like that, or did you decide I'm going strip till next year? I did sixty acres. Next year, I went all in. Sixty acres. Six and that years. First year my first was sixty year. acres was enough to convince you yep. that you were going all in. Yeah. So now that you've got seven years of experience with this, this is a question I have. Would anybody be able to talk you back into conventional tillage? Nope. No. Nope. That's not, simple. That's uh, absolutely not. That's crazy. How do you, how soon do you think it would have been along the journey when that became your answer? Well, that was that first year. You did After that infiltration acres. test. Yeah. You noticed a huge difference yeah. right I would, away. I mean, it's gotten more and more. Each year has gotten easier for me to give that answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'll admit every time I go out and plant in the spring, I go plant in that strip. And it's like, hope it works, hope it comes up. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden it pops up like, okay, we're golden. We're, we're good to go. But, I mean, I know it's going to work every year. But, you know, it's still you see all the neighbors are, I mean, the neighbors, they're running out with the field cultivator and, and I'm going with the planter. And so you're like, okay, I'm I'm missing a piece here, but um, no, I would. Uh, I've been very happy, very very pleased with how everything's been working, and I that's, would not go back. Well, that's been a big benefit for us too. When you talk about a challenge that a lot of farmers facing is labor. Mm-hmm. Um, we were finally lucky enough. We looked for a long time for a, a full time person um, when his dad was kind of wanting to be done and kind of over the technology part of it and that sort of thing. <laughs> that we needed a full time person and. It's hard to find somebody that's good and will show up to work every day and is conscientious. And um, luckily, we we were able to find somebody that's been a really good fit. But it's reduced our need for labor quite a bit too. And we just don't have as many machines that need to not run. Not as many passes across the field. Not as many yeah. passes, and I went, it's been a I big guess benefit. Everybody always says we don't make as many passes, which we might have maybe one, maybe two less, but. Um, more efficient passes, um, you know, instead of running with the field cultivator to take out your weeds or something like that, um, I'm running across with the sprayer, take the weeds out. So, I mean, 120 foot boom, it takes you no time at all. I mean, get a hundred acres done in about 40 minutes. Um, fertilizer, I'm doing all my tillage and fertilizer in one pass. I don't have to worry about the co-op getting out there to doing stuff. So it's, um, 
a lot of different efficiencies along the way there that you don't fully see right off the bat. Do you, do you see some ability, you know, how, how do we go about quantifying some of that or putting some of the economics behind it? Have you guys looked in, into that all that much? Well, I have some. I mean, by the time you, oh, geez, I can't remember the numbers off my head. I had that stuff all figured out one time. Just on my figuring the differences in running a field cultivator and running a sprayer, um, what did they figure on field covers like ten bucks an acre and running sprayer, you know, it was like five. So all of a sudden you got five dollars an acre savings there and um fuel savings has just been huge for me. And you know, I take out the when we used to run ripper, hundred and sixty acres, it's three hundred gallons just about three hundred gallons of fuel to run that thing. Well now hundred and sixty acres it takes me maybe half a tank. I got maybe I run gallon and a half a gallon an acre when I'm doing strip tilling. When I was running chisel plow or ripper, we're running anywhere a gallon and a half to two gallons. So, you know, it's little savings, but after but those a while, little pieces add up. They add up, to big up to a pretty yeah. big saving, especially over the years. You know, when you think about even paying back equipment or that sort of thing, those savings add up over the years. My my question, I guess, is you know, in you guys's view. What needs to happen in order to implement conservation or in order to, and more so in order to make sure that everybody is doing their part to impact the environment in a beneficial manner um, and in order to maintain the family farm or whatnot too, you know, what, if you guys were to implement the system, what would it look like in your eyes? Zach, you notice how empty his eyes are. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I mean, this is just my opinion, and it may be popular and it might not. But um, in some sense, I think, I mean, farmers, it's been a tough road for a number of years now. And I think in a little bit of, this is going to sound terrible. We can edit it. Okay, that's good. You can edit it. Don't use this if you don't want to use it. But I think some people have lost that greater good mindset um, for pure survival, right? Like some farms are just making it year to year and that's what they have to do. But um, at some point you have to think about we're making these changes for the long term. Um, When you talk about culture, agriculture is one where we talk a lot about, you know, how many generations. It's a big point of pride and rightfully so. Um, But we also have We've done a lot of damage to some of our of our you know soils and that sort of thing, and I think in in a sense it can be repaired. We can do a little bit of work to to improve going forward, but I think that's some sometimes an end goal that in the environment we're in gets lost a little bit is that you know we we have a really long term game here. If you want it to go five more generations, then maybe we need to start looking at this differently. Um, you know when you're father and grandfather were ripping and disking and even moldboard plowing back all those years. They were doing the best that they knew how to do with the information they had and the tools that they had. And the fact is now we have a lot of information. Sometimes I think almost too much. We get information like overload. uh, overload. And, but now we have the ability to do things better. And it's just changing that mindset a little bit. I think that this is a really a long-term game. And if we, like I said, do want it to go five more generations, are, is what we're doing now 
Is our topsoil going to be there? Is it going to be in the shape that it needs to be in if we want it to be five more generations? One one of the biggest things, it's kind of a, I don't know, seems kind of odd on it maybe, but I haven't been farming that long. I'm 47 years old, and I started back in 92. Did all the conventional stuff. was actually kind of the monotony of it, just every year, just do the same thing over and over, you know, doing It's gotten kind of fun again for me. Because now with all the different stuff that we're trying, you know, we're always trying to see, well, what cover crop mix are we going to use now to try to help with this thing or that and um, just getting the tillage done. And then we've gotten um, with uh, all the custom work that we've with strip tilling and um, cover crop seeding, just getting out and just meeting the neighbors and being able to talk to them and stuff like that. So that's been uh, kind of put a little bit of fun back. Kind of bringing that sense of community, too, you know, that you're kind of building. I think those are those are good points. You know, as farmers, we always want to try and do better. Yeah. And now you brought up the point of, of technology, and, and information is way more available. So we've got the information, we've got the technology, but unfortunately, like you said, we're kind of stuck in a spot right now with agriculture, and I think it's a worldwide thing, but especially here in the Midwest where it's not easy times. Yeah. You know, it, it's been... Since seven years ago when you guys started this whole thing, things have changed a lot. Yep. And so like you said... There's a lot of farmers out there that are just, just hang on, just survive and just do the best we can to get a good crop next year. Cause this, this thing will hopefully turn around yeah, someday. Absolutely. And then maybe at that point, things will change. Maybe people will be more open to, yeah. to trying to get into some of this stuff. I don't know, but you know, it's, we're in a, we're in a strange spot right now, as I far as that agree. goes. And that's there, where we're not naive to the fact that no. the timing for us was unbelievable. Sure. And, you know, just telling somebody they need to do x y or z and jump right in is not realistic you know i think just pick one field or even part of one field and have you know if you need to hire somebody to custom strip till it you know maybe there are some other savings there if you're not doing the tillage pass it will allow you to help pay for that but just dabble a little bit you know small changes there's and a lot of people don't like to do it do it but the government programs the csp programs and the equip programs and they are good programs to help to absorb some of that cost up there if you do want if you are interested in trying it. Um, it's probably one of the best ways, especially right now with the prices down, to try to get into it. And if you are interested in trying any of it, well, Brian and Lauren Bigler, farmers from southwestern Minnesota, we appreciate you guys coming in here. This has been fun. It's been interesting to talk to you guys. So, thank you again for coming in. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us. We've been talking today with Minnesota farmers Brian and Lauren Bigler about the challenges of getting people in their networks on board with conservation practices. We actually have a really nice video of the Biglers showing uh, what are the different things that they've been trying out. You can check that out on YouTube, of course, at Fieldwork Talk, and on our website at fieldworktalk.org. We're going to dig in a little bit more now on the topic of landowners in particular and their role in determining whether farmers adopt conservation practices. Uh, Randy Dell is the Nature Conservancy's North America Agriculture Program and Ag Program Director and Strategy Manager. That's a mouthful. He's based in Michigan, and he's with us via Skype. How's it going, Randy? Hey, doing great. How about you? I'm doing good. We also have uh, another guest with us, Molly Aronowitz. She's a land manager. Uh, She's with People's Company. Uh, They are a farm management, real estate, appraisal, and investment firm. And she's also with us via Skype. Hey, Molly, how we doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Randy and Molly, you know, we'd like to hear you guys' input on 
how do we as farmers help to, or how do we work to facilitate a conversation with the landowners that most of the farm ground is rented ground? You know, the operators are not the ones who own the farm ground. So we have to have those conversations with the people who do own the farm ground in order to implement things that are new and different and especially long-term um, investment like soil health and sustainability really is. So um, can you guys provide some insight on what you guys see in your day-to-day and um, how do you see us having success with having a conversation as farmers to the landowners? As you mentioned, this issue of landowners and investing in long-term conservation practices um it's really an understudied group. There's been very limited research outside of maybe some surveys by Iowa State and some of the extension universities. So um, through some survey work with American Farmland Trust and Dr. Peggy Petrozelka, we did some surveys in Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa um, to better understand who these folks are, the non-operating landowners, and then how they view conservation and their relationship with their farmer. And the data is, is really clear that landowners value conservation, they value soil health, they're very committed to their farmer. It's a very close relationship, but um, they really necessarily don't want to do a whole lot. They don't want to have to maybe enroll in a program or belong to some kind of peer group. Um, but if their farmer comes to them with a message of conservation soil health, they're very open. They, uh, the survey results we have indicate that um, 80% of the respondents are willing to work with their farmer to extend their lease, do whatever it takes to accommodate conservation practices. And the farmers are really an important voice for that just add to your comments that I would I have seen the same and one question if you if you talked about it in this survey was what does conservation mean to the landowner Um, the buzzwords around water quality they they don't quite know what conservation means and what that looks like on their farm we talk a lot about maximizing production on every farm and protecting the sensitive acres. And just from the financial aspect of, of um, where inputs don't turn into a commodity is often where our concert, where our sensitive acres are as well. Um, and so kind of backing into conservation that way of um, our problem areas is probably where our erosion is happening where our soil and nutrient loss is happening. So addressing it, um, kind of backing into conservation has been an interesting way for us to address it with landowners. So uh, Molly, I've got a question for you then. As a, as a land manager, um, what kinds of things are you trying to do to kind of change this or, or overcome some of those obstacles with the communication between the farmers and the landowners? Um, having both parties come to the table as equal partners and having some more transparency in that relationship of the farmer sharing um, some basic um, data about the farm every year, um, yield history, um, uh, inputs, fertilizer put on the farm, um, having the landowner um, pay for soil testing every four years so that there's data and, you know, to put out on the table um, to discuss and the landowners coming from a role of a space of, you know, knowing what's going on on their farm. Um, when we get new clients, it's a lot of um, they have a long term relationship with the tenant. They really like they don't want to um, upset that relationship, but they they really don't know much about their farm. 
So they have they know the land or they know the farmer. They just yeah. trust that they're doing the right thing because they've known him for a long time, but really they don't have the data to actually back it up. And yeah. Do you think, Ma, do you see like as you guys come in and help to facilitate that conversation between the farmers and the landowners, do you see the farmers willing to be able to, you know, realize some of that data, like their yield data or their fertilizer data and whatnot? Or are they kind of reluctant to give up some of that information? They are reluctant. They're worried that, you know, it'll be somehow used against them, that um, that if the yields are, are high, the rent will go up or um, it'll go out to be bid out to other uh, farmers in the neighborhood. Um, and I really just try to stress, you know, the, the landowner can't make smart decisions without some information in front of them. Randy, you've worked a lot with some of this stuff. Um, there's some studies that show that conservation practices are at least 50% less likely on, on rented land um, and sometimes more like 70 to 80%. Um, can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, it's it's really an understudied group and topic. And there's really kind of a few handful of researchers that are starting to look at this and better understand what are the barriers that landowners face um, in working with their farmers to put these practices uh, on the ground. And yeah, there's a few studies, um, more kind of surveys asking landowners and farmers looking at their conservation practice adoption. Um, TNC, the Nature Conservancy, is working on a project with Purdue University um, where we're doing a behavioral trial, um, providing different kinds of information to landowners and messages related to soil health and seeing what the interest is. And then um, there's a recent study from Canada um, where the researchers were able to have um, data uh, inputs and yields and and conservation practice adoption on all the farmers' fields, and it was in Ontario. And they found that uh, generally tillage practices were prevalent on both uh, the, the owned and the rented land, but Practices like cover crops, where there's that longer-term investment and there's um, some upfront cost, uh, were much less likely on the the rented ground. So do you think um, maybe some of the responsibility lies with the farmers in order to try to communicate a little bit better with the landowners? Yeah. um, You know, I think that there's a great opportunity for farmers that are already incorporating cover crops um, and are are leading with conservation, um, just promoting that to um, landowners and, and sharing with them, you know, brag a little bit, tell them what you're doing on your farms and what um, ideas they have for the landowners farms. And then going out, you know, with, uh, and if you're trying to acquire new acres, um, leading with that. Um, I think as we work with landowners that, you know, half the battle is, is getting to the point where they understand annual uh, cash return versus that appreciation and putting more focus on long-term value of the farm, then, um, you know, I I think for a while we thought that as long as the landowner is helping pay for cover crops, then, um, you know, whatever farmer is in place, good, we're we're good to go, this is going to work. And I think we're learning more and more about we will only have true success and sustainability of these practices on our managed farms unless we partner with farmers that are doing these practices across their operation. Do you see any differences? I'm curious on this, and this can be for either of you, both of you. 
Do you see differences when it comes to the ages of the landowners and how willing they may be or may not be to allow the farmer to adopt different practices? I definitely see it in um, the younger landowners. Um, and if they, um, in Iowa, if they, if they happen to live in the Des Moines metro area, it was, you know, when we had that um, Des Moines Waterworks lawsuit a couple of years ago, that was um, a big wake-up call for our Des Moines Metro landowners, and we got a lot of calls saying, you know, I, I've, I've never really thought about how the water comes and goes from my farm, and what role do I have in this in water quality? Um, and also the younger landowners, um, maybe themselves or their kids, are are more um, put a bigger emphasis on um, eating. Um, you know, organic food, um, you know, that whole movement, they're putting the pieces together of their daily um, lifestyle and, and the farmland they own more than maybe the older generation. So with all of it, though, how do we help to facilitate that conversation better? You know, how, how are you guys seeing um, success? How do How do we get that partnership to work better? Sounds like plenty of the landowners of course they want to improve their land that's a huge asset for them extremely valuable um how do we help to foster that conversation here and as a podcast you know that's for these land for really both parties i suppose you know we're gonna have landowners listening we're gonna have farmers listening how do we get them to work together what's you guys' thoughts on that maybe uh start with randy on this one yeah, so I think part of it, um, so one of the challenges is that a lot of leases and arrangements, they're year to year, um, they're verbal, and that's can be a discouragement for making a multi-year commitment to a practice like cover crops, even if the landowner and farmers are have, in many cases, 10, 15, 20-year relationships. So having a little bit more certainty around maybe the leasing arrangements, and then having some better tools that can both account for the costs and benefits of, of these types of practices over time. So parties have a starting point to uh, kind of negotiate and talk about who's, you know, who bears the costs and, and you know, when the benefits will be realized. Um, and that's, I think there's obviously a role for farmers in providing some of that data on some of these practices if they're already utilizing them. And then um, efforts like the Soil Health Partnership that are collecting kind of that data set to, to demonstrate the, the agronomic and economic benefit, a lot of these practices, making that available um, to, again, kind of help those conversations so they're, they're based on um, real and, and, and regional data. I would agree with everything Randy said, and I'd just add, as a landowner, that perspective of, um, you know, conservation work is, is really maintenance of your um, maintenance of the farm, um, you know, if you had any other investment, if you owned a, um, a rental property, you wouldn't just buy it and never, um, you know, put any money into it um, down the road. Um, you know, every year you should be looking at how you can improve the farm and what, what you're going to invest into the farm, put back into it, and just have that mindset of annual improvement to the farm and how you can be working with the farmer to do that. All right, that has been Molly Ronowitz, land manager at the People's Company, and Randy Dell of the Nature Conservancy. Thank you guys today for joining us via Skype. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you for joining us again for another episode of Fieldwork. Thanks to Annie Baxter, Amy Scotchless-Cole, Dan Ackerman, Todd Melby, Ayana Esters, Lauren Humpert, Laura Doherty, Dom DeFirio, and Jeff Thompson. 
Thanks, Johnny Vince Evans, for writing our theme song. And thank you to Corey Shreppel for helping to perform it. Thanks for all the engineering and technical support we got from the folks at American Public Media. For all of you listening, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to podcasts if you're like Zach and you don't have an iPhone. <laughs> Go to fieldworktalk.org to see all of our other places you can follow us, including on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. You can follow Zach on YouTube also. Right, Zach? Yeah, you can. Check us out on there. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. And join us next time for more exciting content from the Fieldwork Podcast. <laughs>